Chapter Twelve, Part C, of Aaron's Rod by D. H. Lawrence. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. Novara. Part C. I see you are like Lily. You trust to Providence," said Sir William. "Providence or fate," said Aaron. "'Lily calls it Providence,' said Sir William. "'For my own part I always advise Providence plus a banking account. I have every belief in Providence plus a banking account. Providence and no banking account I have observed to be almost invariably fatal. Lily and I have argued it. He believes in casting his bread upon the waters. I sincerely hope he won't have to cast himself after his bread one of these days. Providence with a banking account. Believe in Providence once you have secured enough to live on. I should consider it disastrous to believe in Providence before. One can never be sure of Providence." "'What can you be sure of, then?' said Aaron. "'Well, in moderation I can believe in a little hard cash, and in my own ability to earn a little hard cash. Perhaps Lily believes in his own ability, too. No, not so because he will never directly work to earn money. He works, and works quite well, I am told, but only as the spirit moves him, and never with any eye to the market. Now I call that tempting providence myself. The spirit may move him in quite an opposite direction to the market. Then where is Lily? I have put it to him more than once. The spirit generally does move him dead against the market, said Aaron, but he manages to scrape along. In a state of jeopardy, all the time in a state of jeopardy, said the old man. His whole existence, and that of his wife, is completely precarious. I found in my youth the spirit moved me to various things which would have left me and my wife starving. So I realized in time this was no good. I took my spirit in hand, therefore, and made him pull the cart which mankind is riding in. I harnessed him to the work of productive labor, and so he brought me my reward. Yes, said Aaron but every man according to his belief. "'I don't see,' said Sir William, "'how a man can believe in a providence unless he sets himself definitely to the work of earning his daily bread, and making provision for future needs. That's what providence means to me—making provision for oneself and one's family. Now, Mr. Lilly, and you yourself, you say you believe in a providence that does not compel you to earn your daily bread, and make provision.' I confess myself I cannot see it, and Lily has never been able to convince me." "'I don't believe in a kind-hearted providence,' said Aaron, and I don't believe Lily does. But I believe in chance. I believe if I go in my own way, without tying my nose to a job, chance will always throw something in my way, enough to get along with. But on what do you base such a very unwarrantable belief? I just feel like that and if you are ever quite without success, and nothing to fall back on? I can work at something. In case of illness, for example, I can go to a hospital, or die. Dear me! However, you are more logical than Lily. He seems to believe that he has the invisible—call it providence, if you will—on his side, and that this invisible will never leave him in the lurch, or let him down, so long as he sticks to his own side of the bargain, and never works for his own ends. I don't quite see how he works. Certainly he seems to me a man who squanders a great deal of talent unworthily. 
Yet for some reason or other he calls this true, genuine activity, and has a contempt for actual work by which a man makes provision for his years and for his family. In the end he will have to fall back on charity. But when I say so, he denies it, and says that in the end we, the men who work and make provision, will have to fall back on him. Well, all I can say is that so far he is in far greater danger of having to fall back on me than I on him. The old man sat back in his chair with a little laugh of triumph, but it smote almost devilishly on Aaron's ears, and for the first time in his life he felt that there existed a necessity for taking sides. "'I don't suppose he will do much falling back,' he said. "'Well, he is young yet. You are both young. You are squandering your youth. I am an old man, and I see the end.' "'What end, Sir William?' "'Charity and poverty.' and some not very congenial job, as you call it, to put bread in your mouth. No, no, I would not like to trust myself to your providence, or your chance, though I admit your chance is a sounder proposition than Lily's providence. You speculate with your life and your talent. I admit the nature which is a born speculator. After all, with your flute, you will speculate in other people's taste for luxury, as a man may speculate in theatres, or trains de luxe. You are the speculator. That may be your way of wisdom. But Lily does not even speculate. I cannot see his point. I cannot see his point. I cannot see his point. Yet I have the greatest admiration for his mentality." The old man had fired up during this conversation, and all the others in the room had gone silent. Lady Franks was palpably uneasy. She alone knew how frail the old man was, frailer by far than his years. She alone knew what fear of his own age, what fear of death haunted him now, fear of his own non-existence. His own old age was an agony to him, worse than an agony, a horror. He wanted to be young, to live, to live. And he was old, he was breaking up. The glistening youth of Aaron, the impetuousness of Lily, fascinated him and both these men seemed calmly to contradict his own wealth and honours. Lady Franks tried to turn off the conversation to the trickles of normal chit-chat. The Colonel was horribly bored. So were all the women. Arthur was indifferent. Only the young Major was implicated, troubled in his earnest and philosophic spirit. "'What I can't see,' he said, "'is the place that others have in your scheme.' "'It isn't a scheme,' said Aaron. Well, then, your way of life. Isn't it pretty much selfish to marry a woman and then expect her to live on very little indeed, and that always precarious, just because you happen to believe in providence or in chance, which I think worse? What I don't see is where others come in. What would the world be like if everybody lived that way? Other people can please themselves, said Aaron. No, they can't, because you take first choice, it seems to me. Supposing your wife, or Lily's wife, asks for security and for a provision, as Sir William says, surely she has a right to it. If I've no right to it myself, and I have no right to it, if I don't want it, then what right has she? Every right, I should say, all the more since you are improvident. Then she must manage her rights for herself. It's no good her foisting her rights on to me. Isn't that pure selfishness? It may be. I shall send my wife money as long as I've money to send. And supposing you have none? Then I can't send it. 
and she must look out for herself. I call that almost criminal selfishness. I can't help it. The conversation with the young major broke off. "'It is certainly a good thing for society that men like you and Mr. Lilly are not common,' said William, laughing. "'Becoming commoner every day, you'll find,' interjaculated the Colonel. "'Indeed, indeed. Well, may we ask you another question, Mr. Sisson? I hope you don't object to our catechism.' "'No, nor your judgment afterwards,' said Aaron, grinning. "'Then upon what grounds did you abandon your family? I know it is a tender subject, but Lilly spoke of it to us, and as far as I could see—' "'There were no grounds,' said Aaron. "'No, there weren't. I just left them.' mere caprice if it's a caprice to be begotten and a caprice to be born and a caprice to die then that was a caprice for it was the same like birth or death i don't follow it happened to me as birth happened to me once and death will happen it was a sort of death too or a sort of birth but as undeniable as either and without any more grounds the old tremulous man and the young man were watching one another. "'A natural event,' said Sir William. "'A natural event,' said Aaron. "'Not that you loved any other woman? God save me from it. You just left off loving?' "'Not even that. I went away.' "'What from?' "'From it all.' "'From the woman in particular? Oh, yes, 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 that.' "'And you couldn't go back?' Aaron shook his head. "'Yet you can give no reasons?' "'Not any reasons that would be any good. It wasn't a question of reasons. It was a question of her and me and what must be. What makes a child be born out of its mother to the pain and trouble of both of them? I don't know. But that is a natural process. So is this. Or nothing.' "'No,' interposed the Major, "'because birth is a universal process, and yours is a specific, almost unique event. "'Well, unique or not, it so came about. "'I didn't ever leave off loving her, not as far as I know. "'I left her as I shall leave the earth when I die, because it has to be.' "'Do you know what I think it is, Mr. Sisson?' put in Lady Franks. "'I think you are just in a wicked state of mind. "'Just that. Mr. Lilly, too.' and you must be very careful, or some great misfortune will happen to you." "'It may,' said Aaron. "'And it will, mark my word, it will.' "'You almost wish it might, as a judgment on me,' smiled Aaron. "'Oh, no, indeed, I should only be too sorry. But I feel it will, unless you are careful.' "'I'll be careful, then. Yes, and you can't be too careful. You make me frightened. I would like to make you very frightened indeed, so that you went back humbly to your wife and family. It would have to be a big fright, then, I assure you. Ah, you are really heartless. It makes me angry. She turned angrily aside. Well, well. Well, well. Life. Life. Young men are a new thing to me, said Sir William, shaking his head. Well, well. What do you say to whiskey and soda, Colonel? "'Why, delighted, Sir William,' said the Colonel, bouncing up. "'A nightcap, and then we retire,' said Lady Franks. Aaron sat thinking. He knew Sir William liked him, and that Lady Franks didn't. One day he might have to seek help from Sir William, so he had better placate Milady, wrinkling the fine, half-mischievous smile on his face. 
and trading on his charm, he turned to his hostess. "'You wouldn't mind, Lady Franks, if I said nasty things about my wife and found a lot of fault with her. What makes you angry is that I know it is not a bit more her fault than mine, that we come apart. It can't be helped.' "'Oh, yes, indeed. I disapprove of your way of looking at things altogether. It seems to me altogether cold and unmanly and inhuman. Thank goodness my experience of a man has been different.' "'We can't all be alike, can we? And if I don't choose to let you see me crying, that doesn't prove I've never had a bad half-hour, does it? I've had many, aye, and a many. Then why are you so wrong, so wrong in your behaviour? I suppose I've got to have my bout out, and when it's out, I can alter.' "'Then I hope you've almost had your bout out,' she said. "'So do I,' said he, with a half-repentant, half-depressed look on his attractive face. The corners of his mouth grimaced slightly under his moustache. "'The best thing you can do is go straight back to England, and to her.' "'Perhaps I'd better ask her if she wants me first, he said dryly. "'Yes, you might do that, too.' And Lady Franks felt she was quite getting on with her work of reform, and the restoring of woman to her natural throne. Best not go too fast, either. "'Say when,' shouted the Colonel, who was manipulating the siphon. "'When?' said Aaron. The men stood up to their drinks. "'Will you be leaving in the morning, Mr. Sisson?' asked Lady Franks. "'May I stay till Monday morning?' said Aaron. They were at Saturday evening. "'Certainly. And you will take breakfast in your room. We all do. At what time? Half-past eight? Thank you very much. Then at half-past eight the man will bring it in. Good night.' Once more in his blue silk bedroom, Aaron grimaced to himself, and stood in the middle of the room grimacing. His hostess's admonitions were like vitriol in his ears. He looked out the window. Through the darkness of trees the lights of a city below. Italy! The air was cold with snow. He came back into his soft, warm room. Luxurious it was, and luxurious the deep, warm bed. He was still asleep when the man came noiselessly in with the tray, and it was morning. Aaron woke and sat up. He felt that the deep warm bed and the soft warm room had made him sleep too well, robbed him of his night like a narcotic. He preferred to be more uncomfortable and more aware of the flight of the dark hours. It seemed numbing. The footman, in his grey house-jacket, was neat and Italian and sympathizing. He gave good morning in Italian, then softly arranged the little table by the bedside and put out the toast and coffee and butter and boiled egg and honey, with silver and delicate china. Aaron watched the soft cat-like motions of the man. The dark eyes glanced once at the blond man, leaning on his elbow on the pillow. Aaron's face had that watchful, half-amused expression. The man said something in Italian. Aaron shook his head, laughed, and said, "'Tell me in English.' The man went softly to the window-curtains, and motioned them with his hand. "'Yes, do,' said Aaron. So the man drew the buff-coloured silk curtains, and Aaron, sitting in bed, could see away beyond the red roofs of a town, and in the further heaven great snowy mountains. "'The Alps,' he said in surprise. "'Gli Alpi, si, signori.' The man bowed, gathered up Aaron's clothes, and silently retired. Aaron watched through the window. It was a frosty morning at the end of September, with a clear blue morning sky, alpine, 
and the watchful snow-streaked mountain-tops bunched in the distance, as if waiting. There they were, hovering round, circling, waiting. They reminded him of marvellous striped sky-panthers, circling round a great camp, the red-roofed city. Aaron looked and looked again. In the near distance, under the house, elm-tree tops were yellowing. He felt himself changing inside his skin. So he turned away to his coffee and eggs, a little silver egg-cup with a curious little frill around it, honey in a frail iridescent glass bowl, gold iridescent, the charm of delicate and fine things. He smiled half-mockingly to himself. Two instincts played in him, the one an instinct for fine, delicate things. He had attractive hands, the other an inclination to throw the dainty little table with all its niceties out of the window. It evoked a sort of devil in him. He took his bath. The man had brought back his things. He dressed and went downstairs. No one in the lounge. He went down to the ground floor. No one in the big hall with its pillars of yellow marble and its gold arches, its enormous dark bluey-red carpet. He stood before the great glass doors. Some red flowers were still blooming in the tubs, on the steps. Handsome and beautiful chrysanthemums in the wide portico. Beyond, yellow leaves were already falling on the green grass and the neat drive. Everywhere was silent and empty. He climbed the wide stairs, sat in the long upper lounge where the papers were. He wanted his hat and coat, and did not know where to find them. The windows looked on to a terraced garden, the hill rising steeply behind the house. He wanted to go out. So he opened more doors, and in a long drawing-room came upon five or six manservants, all in the grey house-jackets, all clean-shaven, neat, with neat black hair, all with dusters or brushes or feather-brooms, and all frolicking, chattering, playing like so many monkeys. They were all of the same neat smallish size. They were all laughing. They rolled back a great rug as if it were some football game. One flew at the curtains and they merely looked at Aaron and went on chattering and laughing and dusting. Surprised and feeling that he trespassed, he stood at the window a moment looking out. The noise went on behind him, so he turned, smiling, and asked for his hat, pointing to his head. They knew at once what he wanted. One of the fellows beckoned him away, down to the hall and to the long cupboard place, where hats and coats and sticks were hung. There was his hat. He put it on, while the man chattered to him pleasantly and unintelligibly, and opened for him the back door into the garden. End of chapter 12, Part C